This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Before most rare patients have a name to give their condition, they go on a diagnostic odyssey that can take years and usually involves multiple specialists. For some patients, the answer never comes. In the absence of a diagnosis, patients face significant challenges getting the care they need, reimbursed by insurers, or necessary accommodations from schools or employers. Ahead of Undiagnosed Disease Day, which takes place April 29th, we spoke to Gina Zanuck, Executive Director of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, and Matt Might, Director of the You Call Personalized Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. They discussed what it's like to be undiagnosed, efforts to raise awareness about the plight of undiagnosed patients, and why undiagnosed is a diagnosis. Gina, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. We're going to talk about life as an undiagnosed patient, the issues patients without a diagnosis face, and the upcoming Undiagnosed Disease Day. Perhaps we can start with the big picture. How big a population of patients are undiagnosed, and how significant a problem does this represent? If you think about sort of the, the total magnitude of undiagnosed disorders, it's easily in the millions of people. I mean, there's a lot of people out there suffering from a condition that they don't yet have a name for. And, you know, it, it's a real problem at a societal level, but also at an individual level. You know, when you try to do something as simple as get, you know, reimbursed for insurance, it can be real challenging if you don't have a disease name to put down. Um, you know, because we're really structured to reimburse around things like the diagnosis. So, um, and that, that's not even to mention, you know, the day-to-day uncertainty that you live with when you don't know what you have and don't know what it could do to you. Not to be glib, but everyone is undiagnosed until they have a diagnosis. Matt, for patients with a rare disease, what is the diagnostic odyssey like? What do patients typically go through to get the answers they seek? Yeah, so it's changing a little bit thanks to advances in genomic technology, um, but it's, it's often a multi-year process. Uh, it's not uncommon for patients to take four, five, six, seven years. In some cases, I know patients that get diagnosed in their 20s. Uh, so people can spend literally decades in the rare disease community until they finally find an answer. Um, and, you know, during this period, you're often, you know, working with specialist to specialist, doctor to doctor, hospital to hospital, trying to find an answer, but often unable to. Uh, and that's just, just in part because you know, there's so many rare diseases that no one physician can know them all. And so you're sort of uh, playing this game of trying to find a physician that will finally, by luck, know what it is that you have. Um, 
Now, like, like I said, you know, genomics is really changing that. The ability to sequence the human genome uh, fast and, and affordably uh, has, in many cases, made it achievable to finally achieve a genetic diagnosis. That said, even with all that power, uh, only in about a third of the cases where we do a genome sequence do we actually get a diagnosis these days um, for, for the intractable diagnostic odyssey. So things are a lot better, but we still have a lot further to go. Gina, help move us from the abstract to the personal. You know this both as a parent of children with undiagnosed conditions as well as being a patient with an undiagnosed condition yourself. What's it like? You know, I've, I've said people just don't understand. You, you, We don't know what their bodies are going to go through when they go through puberty. We don't know if they're going to change and we're going to, something's going to happen and they're going to end up having healthy lives or does it go the other way and I lose them. And, you know, I every day you worry that your child might die. And I think that rare disease patients and families have that as well. I just think living in the world of the unknown every day. It, it creates so much anxiety. Even with my 10-year-old daughter, her anxiety is there. Um, I, I just, it's, but you don't stop. You don't, you don't just give in and accept your new norm, which is what most of the specialists are telling us to do now. Um, I still continue every day to search for something new to do to try to find a diagnosis. What has it meant in, in terms of getting care? What happens when you show up to a doctor with symptoms and, and no diagnosis? You know, from day one, I still think of the doctor that I, t- I spoke to on the very beginning of our journey, and she said, you just have to treat the symptoms. Um, and, and I'm sorry, and that's what, the best that I can do. And I went, you know, from how many years out from, from that, 2012 is when that doctor said that to me, and, and the journey that we've gone to, to eight institutions in five different states and 100 more specialists and my last specialist just said that to me. Um, Gina, we're just going to have to treat the symptoms, and I'm sorry. That's all we can do. We don't have a diagnosis, you know, or, or an answer for, or a cause for the root cause. And it's like all those years, and I'm still in the same phase, but I know that I, our journey has brought so many people into our lives, as, as Matt might and his wife and their family and all these families. And so I'm proud and honored for the journey I've been on, but I, it's still the same exact answer last week than I had in 2012. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do except treat the symptoms. Matt alluded to this a moment ago, but how difficult is it getting insurance companies to pay for a a, a diagnostic test, to to pay for specific treatments or or get a medication in the absence of having a diagnosis in in a system where people pay by diagnostic codes? Yeah, in the absence of a diagnosis, um, yeah, I can give you a very concrete example. You know, we wanted to get uh, a percussion vest, vest for Bertrand, and, you know, the, the insurance denied reimbursement for this because it said, this is only available for two very specific conditions, and you're not diagnosed with one of those conditions. And we thought, but he has the symptoms that would require the vest, so, you know, he needs it even though he doesn't have, you know, one of the named conditions. Uh, and so you, you face frustrations like that quite frequently. Yeah, and I think the doctors, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a really, really dedicated, amazing team of doctors, and they just always have to go to the nth degree with the peer-to-peers, and sometimes twice. I mean, that's, you know, they nothing is easy. You know, I just tried to get MRIs and MRIs done of my brain, and it took, you know, the, 
they were on the phone for over an hour or an hour and a half to two hours, and they don't get paid for that time. They do it because they care about me, and they do it because they care about the kids, always having to push and push and push. Kids with a, a rare disease are, are not just patients. They go to school. They have social lives. Is it hard to get people to understand that you or your child have a disease, even if it is undiagnosed? We've struggled with that. I, I, I mean, I, there's many stories, you know, to focus on invisible diseases, and and you know, it's it's every day that, and I have a family member just recently that you know pushed on Oscar, saying, "Oscar, you were just fine a couple minutes ago, and and now." Now your mom comes in, and, and it was like, wow, even someone that is that close to me still questions my children, you know, and I we've dealt with the schools, and they have 504 plans, and we've moved, you know, to a different school last year, and the principal did not believe us until, I think it was March, and I she finally apologized to me and said, I'm sorry that I didn't believe your family, and I said, why do you believe me now? And she said, well, you're communicating a lot. You're, you're sending me emails of everything that you're doing for your children. And I, in 15 years of being in education, I've never met a family like your family. And, I, and she apologized to my son. I think it's constant every day that if you can't see it, you don't believe it. And even when you have bins of documentation from top, top institutions, it's still hard for people to wrap their mind around it. Matt, you know what it's like to have a child without a diagnosis. Your son Bertram was the first patient ever diagnosed with the NGLI-1 mutation. What was it like to go through the diagnostic odyssey? Uh, it was it was intense. It was a four-year process, and actually I have to give a lot of credit to my wife, who's the one taking him on that diagnostic odyssey in many cases, taking him to, you know, hospital after hospital, doctor after doctor, trying to find an answer for him. And, you know, uh, just being told time and time again, you know, no, you know, after some hypothesis, that no, that's not it either. And... And we got lucky in that, uh, you know, we were able to partner with Duke University and they were running an early pilot of exome sequencing to see if they could diagnose these intractable cases. And, uh, you know, they actually reached out and said, we think Bertram would be perfect for this. And so we felt so fortunate that, that Duke included us in that study and that we were able to work with them and then shocked when the results came back. But they said, you know, we think we have an answer. We think it's NGLI-1. And by the way, we think he's the first one anyone's ever seen. How important has it been to have that diagnosis, even though this is a disease that he was potentially the first patient ever to be known to have it? How has that changed things? Yes, it does two things immediately. Um, so the first thing it did is it meant we could stop searching. I mean, it was, you know, when, when you're undiagnosed, you are constantly uh, engaging with the medical system in the search for answers. And this can be a long very difficult um, and emotionally trying process, and it meant that that process was over, uh, that we could stop searching for an answer. And the other thing it did, because, you know, we were, you know, we were thinking about expanding our family, was it said, and if you want to expand your family, we now know the risk, and we now know the protocols we can, we can put in place to make sure that you can safely expand your family. And so if all that had ever happened was that we got a name, that would have been uh, huge. That would have been, I mean, and, and it was, uh, because... We have uh, another child, Winston, who's here and happy and healthy today because someone took the time to get the science right and to get us an answer. Um, and it means we're not on still on that, that diagnostic odyssey, which we would surely still be on if, um, if we hadn't received a name. 
we know how important genetic testing can be to getting patients who are undiagnosed the, the answers they're seeking. But how difficult is it getting a, a payer to agree that such testing should be done and, and to pay for it? Uh, it varies by state, honestly. Um, you know, some states and some payers seem to be good about reimbursing uh, sequencing in cases where it seems like there's some sort of underlying genetic disorder. In others, it can be real challenging. And so it's, uh, and there's not a lot of uniformity at the moment about you know, reimbursement for sequencing. Gina, has that been an issue for you or your kids? Well, I'm, I feel that our family has been extremely blessed. Um, we've had our exome sequenced and analyzed six times and our whole genome sequenced and analyzed three times. Um, we only had that paid by insurance the very first time at Children's Hospital Wisconsin and um, as Matt's been a part of the process with me and, and with, you know, I have this incredible team of, of geneticists and researchers and doctors looking at our, you know, results and we still came up, you know, with no smoking gun gene. And I think most families don't have that very blessed opportunity to have it, you know, done that, done that many times. Um, but at the end of the day, we still don't have an answer. And I would love for Matt to kind of summarize why we don't have an answer, because I know he, he um, can explain it better than I can. Matt, I, I did want to ask you about that. Earlier, you, you put out a number that I, I found kind of astounding, which is that only a third of patients who undergo genetic testing actually get a diagnosis for their condition? Uh, yeah, so let me be very concrete about that. that this is, uh, if, if you've been on an intractable diagnostic strategy, meaning a multi-year process where you've been looking for an answer, uh, and you go in for, I mean, and it's suspected to be genetic, and you go in for sequencing, there's about a one-third chance that we will find a diagnosis for you, um, which to me seems both high and low, um, that, uh, you know, we, we'd be able to, to do that, uh, or that, that in about a third of cases that we'd be able to do this. Um, and you know, there, there's a number of reasons for that, and, and, and part of it is that oftentimes when we, when we sequence a genome, we find lots of interesting mutations. And the problem is we find too many interesting mutations. And we, you know, in many cases, we've never seen them before in other patients. So we don't know if they're pathogenic or disease-causing or not. Uh, and so there's, there's a huge, almost like genetic jury-like process that goes on once this list of mutations comes back from sequencing. And scientists and clinicians sit in the room and they go, well, what do you think of this one? You know, could this be the one? And then, then there's sort of arguments put, you know, forward that, you know, maybe this is the one or maybe that's the one. And it, it's honestly, it's a complex process. And if you take, you know, 12 geneticists and ask each one which one it might be, you might get 12 different answers. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think we're we're coming to we're, we're developing strategies as a community to figure out, you know, how to how to you know pin down a specific diagnosis. But there's a lot of cases that stop with the sort of um, well, we have a list of interesting mutations phase, and these are called variants of uncertain significance. Um, yeah, and, and that may be you know, as, as many as, uh, you know, another third of the patients that get sequenced where it stops there. And uh, one thing I think is important to realize is that if patients get a hold of that list, there may be ways that they themselves can help push the science on on the, their disease and actually find um, which one of them is truly the culprit. So something I do recommend is that patients try to get back their sequencing data and, um, yeah, see if they can take, take part in that next step of variant interpretation. Matt, I also like... 
to you to explain about multi disease processes and sometimes that it, that's why it's not being captured through sequencing because that was kind of what I took out of the, the conference call you had with our family. Yeah, so I mean, in, in, in some cases, you might be dealing with more than one disease, um, or there could be more than one gene involved, and this, this actually, believe it or not, can make it harder than easier to pin down uh, the cause of the disease because uh, you know you can't find one gene that explains everything, and um, yeah, in some cases, you know, you, you can even have different diseases within a family, and so you, you can get led astray when you're trying to you know, pin down a definitive culprit within a family. But there's, there's a number of things that can make it very challenging to pin down the exact uh, cause of a disease. That said, that yeah, there's, there's you know, interesting new technologies that are already being used that are in some cases helping us get um, more answers. And so, for example, transcriptomics and you know, the transcriptome are sort of the, the next generation genome, if you will, when it comes to diagnostics. And the data is early, but it looks like it may push the diagnostic rate as high as two-thirds uh, to, to switch to that sort of technology. Um, so, yeah, there, there's hope that we will actually, you know, continue to, to provide answers to patients even where it's been difficult in the past. Is there reason to be optimistic that as more people get sequenced that we're going to do a better job of matching genotype to phenotype and understanding which mutations are meaningful and, and potentially driving a, a specific patient's condition? That is absolutely true. You know, so again, one of the challenges is when you get this list of mutations back for a patient, you go, I wonder which one it is. Well, if you've already seen a mutation in another patient and it's causing their disease, then you have an answer right there. And so matching patients is actually one of the best ways to definitively diagnose somebody or to, to even to determine that a gene is actually pathogenic. And we are building large databases now of, you know, in some cases, population databases. Others are more narrowly focused on rare disease specifically or undiagnosed disease specifically. And these databases are very powerful at bringing answers. And so the bigger they get, um, you know, uh, the more powerful they become at uh, being able to diagnose patients. Gina, April 29th is Undiagnosed Disease Day. What is Undiagnosed Disease Day and how did it come about? Well, I started in 2016. I was reaching out with SWAN, um, Syndromes Without a, a, a Name, and I was trying to understand there's a lot of different dates out there, and I just wanted to have one date and kind of just every year focus on April 29th. And in 2016, I asked my daughter to draw what would she do for an undiagnosed awareness ribbon, and she drew this ribbon, the rare disease colors, you know, are zebras and black and white. And so we added in the baby blue and baby pink for baby boy and baby girl. And um, my fabulous marketing team created these images. And I just wanted to raise awareness because, you know, we are undiagnosed. And that is our diagnosis until further note, you know, noted. And um, so we kind of started small and just telling everybody that would listen, here's our marketing materials, here's a video, here's um, take it and do whatever you want with it. And, um, and we had a really good response in 2016. And 2017, um, we were relocating again, and, and I didn't do as much as I had wanted. But um, this year, I'm pushing hard um, just to raise awareness for the undiagnosed rare disease community. And so far, I've just the response has been amazing. We have people in Italy, we have people in Chile, people in Israel, all interested in sharing just these images. And um, there, it's personal for me, obviously, but I 
there's just a huge undiagnosed rare disease population out there that I just want to know that, you know, that they're, we want to recognize them and raise awareness for them. And what happens on Undiagnosed Disease Day and how can people participate if they'd like to? They can share, just share the video, share the, the marketing materials, change your banner, you know, post a photo, hashtag Undiagnosed Day. You know, um, the goals are for um, Undiagnosed Day, just shortening it with the hashtag, is just obviously raise awareness. Um, really, I love to bring, you know, collaboration and global cooperation, which has been fun working with um, people around the world. And, again, the third is to, to have that undiagnosed rare disease to be recognized as a distinct population. So in any way that sharing photos, sharing your story, telling us about your diagnostic odyssey, even, you know, like we said, all rare patients were once undiagnosed. So they're a part of this, too. So share how, give us hope. You know, give us that your diagnostic odyssey. I just think sharing, sharing and, and as much as possible on that day. I know you like to say undiagnosed is a diagnosis. What do you mean by that? What would you like people and payers and, and providers to understand? I'll just give you an example. There was an organization in Salt Lake with a wonderful, wonderful team, and um, they would not accept undiagnosed as a diagnosis. And I met with them, and I said, well, we're, you know, we have medical bills, we, we're sick, we have issues, and you, you give money to, to rare families. And I, he sat down, and we talked for a long time, and he still tells the story three years later that until he sat and listened to me, he was not accepting, you know, giving families the $5,000 a year that he was giving rare families. He now does, and it's listed, and they've changed their mission statement. So I think... It is a diagnosis, and how, how do insurance companies deal with that population? We need to work on that, with, as we discussed earlier, with codes. And it's, I don't know, I just I don't have anything else to grab onto, so I'm grabbing on to undiagnosed. For people who'd like to participate in Undiagnosed Disease Day, is there a place they can begin? Is there, is there a website they should go to? Please, the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, um, is, we have... Everything is up there. Um, our Facebook page has everything. Um, Twitter has so rare at rare and undiagnosed, and um, yeah, www.rareundiagnosed.org is the website. And and they can email me. They can call me. I, I do want to just do. We are speaking um, for undiagnosed day on Friday at the University of Utah School of Medicine to the medical students. And so my daughter will be speaking and um, Susan Atwater, Jen Frisk, and a few other people to help just open their eyes to the world of being undiagnosed. And Dr. John Carey is um, hosting it with me as a moderator, and we're really excited to start, you know, maybe working with medical schools on a, on a bigger level. Again, for more information, you can go to rareundiagnosed.org. Gina Zana, co-founder and executive director of RUN, the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, and Matt Might, director of the UCall Personalized Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>